0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place, customizable sections and personalized alerts, stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: We do recognize that a rate cut will not reduce the rate of infection. It won't fix a broken supply chain. We get that. We don't think we have all the answers, but we do believe that our action will provide a meaningful boost to the economy.
0: The Fed surprises markets with the biggest rate cut since 2008, but fails to lift investor sentiment. The Dow plunges nearly 800 points. Asian stocks lack direction, but the emergency measure sends the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield below 1% for the first time ever, and gold prices rise. We speak about the central bank's move with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. That's at 9.30 CET.
2: Meanwhile, the WHO warning the death rate of coronavirus is higher than originally anticipated, adding that travel restrictions are not enough to contain the outbreak. And China's services sector records its worst month on record plunging to just 26.5 and escalating a string of disappointing data.
3: Biden scores big in the South as the Super Tuesday results pour in. Delegate Heavy California is still too close to call, but Bernie Sanders is forecasting victory.
1: We are going to win the Democratic nomination. We are going to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of this country.
0: So very good morning, everybody. We've come to the wall to talk a little bit about this big move we've seen in the interest rates from the Federal Reserve. It's delivered its first emergency rate cut since the global financial crisis in response to the economic impact of the coronavirus outbreak. The Fed cut its key lending rate by 50 basis points to a 1 to 1.25 percent range. The central bank says the virus poses evolving risks to the economy and that lower rates will help to maintain maximum employment and price stability. Now, the emergency move, the steepest adjustment since December 2008, when the Fed cut rates by 75 basis points. Speaking in a press conference following the surprise, surprise move, the Fed chair Jerome Powell explained why the central bank chose to go ahead with the unexpected policy change, despite underlying strength still in the U.S. economy,
1: what changed really was, I would say, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've sp- we've seen a broader spread of the virus. We've seen it begin to uh, spread a bit here in the United States. But for us, what really matters, of course, is is not the epidemiology, but the the risk to the economy. So we saw a risk to the to the outlook for the economy and chose to act.
0: Well, Powell also addressed speculation of a coordinated move with other major central banks around the world after the G7 finance ministers and policymakers held an emergency call, which resulted, of course, in many kind words, but very little real action.
1: Central banks are doing what makes sense in their particular institutional context, but we're all talking to each other on an ongoing basis. And our action today represents what we think is the right policy for us in our particular uh, institutional context under our domestic mandate.
2: So let's uh, take a look at the markets. Uh, My markets are over there, right, okay. Uh, 2.8% lower is where the uh, S&P 500 index closed. The NASDAQ down 3%, the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 2.9%. The banking sector hit uh, pretty hard as well. Uh, You see Bank of America down 5.5% and Goldman Sachs down 2.9%. Technology stocks are also under a vast amount of pressure, 4.8% lower Microsoft, and we see Facebook down 5.4% as well. Let's take a look at the Treasuries. We've mentioned the 10-year yield uh, now trading at 09699
3: I'm going to push onto the Asian markets because we have seen a bit of a mixed picture across those markets as well. And uh, the Japanese stock market just inching ahead into the green. Hong Kong stocks moving south are down about a tenth of a percent. There has been a move by the central bank there, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, lowering its base rate through the overnight discount window by 50 basis points to 1.5%. And uh, this is effectively after the Fed has moved. So we are seeing more action by central banks. Australia, of course, the first to move. We saw that yesterday from the Reserve Bank of Australia. And that market down 1.7%. The outlier here has been Korean stocks. We have seen a little bit more strength than the weakness you're seeing on the charts here. This was after we also saw measures from the government. The uh, package that they unveiled today, $11.7 trillion won worth or $9.8 billion. And this is a country that has the most coronavirus cases outside of China. So the response across the board uh, impacting the region. I want to take you to some of those Asian banks and you can see how it plays out at uh, this sector level. HSBC, Standard Chartered still trade weaker. ICBC in China, down a fraction, not too bad. Ag Bank, actually in positive territory. The Australian banks trade weaker. And you can see uh, you've got uh, Mizuho down 1.87%. Dollar crosses. Dollar has been a casualty. That's been noted. You've seen a reversal, particularly uh, on uh, dollar-yen rates. This morning, trying to march a little bit higher, but the level 107.41 is what we've got. Uh, Euros claimed the 111.5 mark. This morning, trying to reverse that position a little bit. But to take a look at these levels. Very strong indeed, if you take a look at that euro strength in recent days and weeks. WTI, Brent, uh, a quick look at those trades this morning. Trying to bounce into the green... We've got a lot of chatter about what may happen later on this week. From OPEC, OPEC Plus, perhaps the Russians are on board now. Run some sort of a concerted production cut. And WTI, 47.90, so just below the 48 mark. And 52.61 And Brent Gold. Picked up a bid yet again in the trade yesterday. 16.42, so we've marched higher. On that level. And I think the question for investors what do you do at this point? Do you go back into markets or is it too early? If you look back to the financial crisis, because now as we look at some of the, the big drops we've seen on markets, we've had extraordinary measures from the Fed. Is it early enough to go back into markets or is it too early?
2: Um, I can give you some historical precedent if you like on this one as well. Jeff was talking about those late 2008 rate cuts from the Federal Reserve. Uh, And then, of course, we saw um, a G20 meeting in April 2009, London. Between the two, the markets hit uh, a low in March. So after the rate cut in late 2008, it took another three, four months plus for the market to hit its low. That might give you a bit of dispiriting historical context at how long it takes the markets to find some form of stability. One thing I will say about the policymakers' moves is a couple of things. One, uh, on the Federal Reserve, I saw Jim Cramer tweeting yesterday, and I think Jim has got a fantastic gauge on market. I think he knows market sentiment as well, if not better than most out there as well. And he said, look, I was actually getting quite interested in this market now. I thought there was potentially an opportunity, but now the Fed has cut rates. Normally, that would be a green light to buy markets. Actually, I'm worried about what the Fed knows. The other point I'll make is about WTI and Brent as well. What can OPEC do? And I have to say, when, as, as Jay Powell was talking about, the supply side issues not necessarily being sorted out by a rate cut from the Fed yesterday, what can OPEC do And this is all about demand? I would suggest Very, very little.
3: It's a very financial crisis commentary yet again. What does the Fed know that we don't know? And I think if you look at market psychology a week ago, a lot of investors thought, well, this is a speed bump for the world economy. Coronavirus at this point, we know it's going to have an impact, but hey, there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. We're going to get back to where we were. You see a 50 basis point move by the Fed, not a scheduled meeting either. I mean, why didn't they just simply wait for another two weeks? It was seemingly uh, enough of an immediate reaction that was required for markets or for the economy for them to act Two weeks ahead of a scheduled meeting, so I think that spooked a lot of investors more so than settled some of those uh, nerves out there that you were seeing across our markets over the last couple of weeks. Okay, well,
2: let's get an expert view from the market, Jeffrey. I'm sorry you couldn't join us for the chat. Well, I was there briefly, but then I had to come back over. They told over you here. to go back to the bridge, didn't
4: well, they?
0: Well, they certainly did. Um, Richard Kelly is with us, um, head of global strategy at TD Securities. Richard, very good morning to you. Thanks very much for joining us what here. So let's just talk about whether the Fed had a choice. Because I think um, to understand why this was done, we need to understand the circumstances in which Jay Powell thinks he found himself and why it was necessary to make this big 50 point move. Do you think it was the appropriate thing to do at this point? And do you think that the market reaction was also appropriate?
5: I don't think there was any reason they needed to go intermeeting. I think what we needed was confidence, and I think you hit the, the nail on the head here. That I mean, We didn't inspire confidence. Even in the press conference, he came out and said, this can do nothing about the spread of the virus, this can do nothing about disruption in supply chains. Those are the two most immediate things we're trying to deal with. Six to nine months from now, it may be appropriate to have lower rates. In this immediate period, we needed confidence, and this did not help that. There should have been other policymakers, there should have been other responses last week to start to calm this market, and it didn't happen. So So I think the the issue here is, is it appropriate, is it right for monetary policy to respond in this? No, not at all. However, no one else was responding, and now you're the one left holding the bag. And that was a bit of the issue.
0: There is another narrative which says that credit markets were already begin to tighten up. Investors were fleeing risk assets. The consequence of that could be more difficulty for companies to get their hands on credit lines. This was a message to the banking industry and the financial system that we will do whatever is necessary to maintain credit lines to corporates and governments that are effectively cash flow negative right now. On that basis, was this the appropriate thing to do?
5: We needed to ease financial conditions, there's no question. If you look at sort of what was implied by what we've seen over the last two weeks, it was the equivalent of about two and a half Fed rate hikes. So in terms of that, from a one-to-one basis, you have eased financial conditions. But I think the, the broader point is there were other ways to provide that confidence and ease those conditions than just coming in and slashing rates, especially in an intermeeting two weeks before your scheduled meeting. That doesn't seem to have helped. I think the bigger issue, even beyond that sort of initial tightening, and I think you're right, like the credit market side of things is an important part of this, Mm. because for all of the volatility we've seen, we are not priced for a recession, and Mm. that's where you'd actually see the significant widening out of credit and equities. This is what we're trying to forestall by these sorts of emergency actions here, and if we don't get it right, that's a much bigger issue. I think that's the problem. What we saw didn't really stop that process, but it sort of put a bandaid on it for now.
3: So what happens next? We were making comparisons to the financial crisis. If you look at the reaction from the Fed, if you look at how markets are now starting to reprice, what you saw back then was coordinated action over a series of weeks and months. It wasn't just one meeting from the Fed. It wasn't just one dramatic move in interest rates, an unscheduled meeting. You had a coordinated response from central banks, from finance ministers, governments. And What you've seen from South Korea, if I can just bring this in, I wonder whether this is a precursor perhaps to the way other governments may respond. You've had almost 10 billion dollars thrown at the system. This is specific measures, channeling money into the health system, childcare, outdoor markets, so effectively supporting vulnerable areas of the economy, self employed people. Could we see those types of targeted measures elsewhere?
5: We should, because this is the point. I mean, if you're cutting interest rates, it's a very broad tool. We know there are specific industries that are hurt much worse that a central bank can't necessarily go into. So those sorts of targeted measures are going to be much more effective at filling the immediate gap, smoothing some of these issues. And you can even go more extreme. I mean, some of the the stories coming out of China, some of the factories have coming back up, but they can't actually get any of the stuff that they're producing back out to market because the transportation system isn't working. Or there's a role for the military to come in with trucks and start delivering these things. I think this is what you have to think through the issues here. It's those targeted measures that will do this. Whereas in a financial crisis, you know, going back to 2008, I think there was almost a sense that central banks knew better what to do in a financial crisis. The problem now is we have a debate over the virus, which is not something any of us are experts on. Does it peak in March, May, or much later in the year? We have central banks that are out of firepower, so they're all debating, well, what can I really do? And it's something that should be fiscal rather than monetary. You made a
2: couple of brilliant points there, but one of them I think is absolutely pertinent, that this will peak it is a an influenza it is a very extreme influenza but it is an influenza virus and we know that from looking at historic seasonal patterns they do peak uh, in the winter stroke spring months as well so there will be a window of opportunity as you just mentioned at some stage later in the year does that mean that we've lost a certain amount of economic capacity we've lost a certain amount of confidence and business activity but it will pick up unlike the great financial crisis which some of us believe hasn't particularly gone away because of the huge debt loads around the world i.e my point being is um, Can we put a timeline on this and say, okay, we've lost this amount of economic activity. That has gone for good now. We're not going to get some of it back. But actually, we can recover from this point onwards. I mean, this is what the medical community is debating.
5: But all of the past evidence suggests that. They're the ones
2: who know what they're talking about rather than us in many ways. Exactly.
5: But I think, I mean, that is the expectation, right? That at some point when the weather gets warm, and this, this was the discussion even early on, you saw this spread much more rapidly in colder environments than warmer because there is something that naturally kills it. So as we move along, that should be something that helps us but it will still won't go away at that point and some of these restrictions will still remain. So I think what's happening now is it's not the virus that's destroying economic activity, it's all the measures we're putting in place to stop its spread and if those remain even in August when there's still a case breaking out here or there and we're still not having events, well that still has an economic implication. But yeah, I think there is a natural circuit breaker in this in terms of when the weather gets warm, we do have a chance for it to get better. Yeah.
0: Richard, you're going to stay with us so we'll come back, we'll pick up the conversation in just a moment. Richard Kelly, head of global strategy at TD Securities. Well, what about some of the other central banks around the world? The German lender Commerce Bank says it expects the European Central Bank to follow the Fed's lead and cut rates by 10 basis points next week. ECB President Christine Lagarde has said the central bank is ready to take appropriate and targeted measures to combat coronavirus. The next policy meeting is set for March 12th. Butternetta Weissbach, who joins us with more on the ECB, the ECB is already in a sticky position because they are currently reviewing the use of monetary tools and, of course, the targets that they've set themselves. So given that there is dissent already within the governing council about this strategy, what room does Christine Lagarde have for further easing?
4: Well, actually, that's a good question, and especially when it comes to rate cuts, I think she'll have a hard time to find a majority in the governing council to really uh, enact rate cuts in order to combat uh, that coronavirus crisis, which has its impact on the Eurozone economy. I just last week uh, caught up with the Bundesbank president, Jens Weidmann, and he was crystal clear about the fact that he doesn't believe that a central bank can actually enact any positivity into a uh, supply chains. It disruptions and that he will not target financial market disruption as well with some uh, sort of uh, rate cut. But what we could actually get is that what Reuters is reporting, I was hearing that as well, we could get some targeted liquidity operations they are just coming up with now. And that could especially be um, yeah targeted towards small and medium sized enterprises because they mostly likely will feel the brunt from the coronavirus impact. Um, and that they could be widely heard. And especially the Eurozone economy is so much dependent on small and medium-sized enterprises. It's not only Germany, it's also Italy and Spain and others who have a very robust sort of layer in the economy, which is small and medium-sized enterprises. And they do face very different financing conditions than the big conglomerates who easily can tap the market at at ultra-low interest rates. So I guess the question is whether they come up with that in uh, until next week when we have the policy meeting, if that's enough time to actually really invent such a new measure, or whether we have to wait a little further. But next week's meeting will, of course, be vital also um, to hear what they think will be the impact on inflation on economic activity going forward. But that back to
0: you. Terrific. Thank you very much, Annette. Still to come on the program, we're going to talk some more about the Fed's latest rate cut. We have Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester joining us. That's a first on interview at 9.30 CET. And our colleagues later today in the US will also speak with IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva. That's a first on interview. That'll be 17.30 CET.
2: And coming up on the show, a two horse race. Joe Biden wins big on. Super Tuesday, but the biggest prize of the night reportedly goes to Bernie Sanders. That's despite Mike Bloomberg spending half a billion? Something ridiculous. Anyway, he's got a few quid left. Uh, We break down the results so far after the break.
3: And just a reminder, if you don't have time to watch us on screen, but want more on the big market moves in markets, uh, views on how to navigate them, we have our own podcast. It's available in all the obvious places.
4: A
3: cluster of powerful tornadoes have killed at least 25 people and injured dozens in parts of Nashville and central Tennessee. A number of people are still missing, while tens of thousands of households and businesses were left without power. President Donald Trump plans to visit the disaster site on Friday.
2: Uh, Joe Biden had a strong showing on this Super Tuesday, winning the most states. NBC News is projecting the former vice president won eight states. Most of the night, Bernie Sanders, though, is leading in the megastate, California, which will be the biggest prize of the night. NBC News has not declared Sanders the winner yet. Meanwhile, it was a yeah, dreadful night, let's be honest about it, for Michael Bloomberg. NBC News is reporting that he plans to reassess tomorrow whether he should stay in the race. Joe Biden addressed supporters prior to the results in California, where he pointed to his resurgence.
0: And declared the
3: campaign
0: dead, and then came South Carolina,
2: and they had something
3: to say about it. And we're told well, when he got to Super, Super Tuesday, would be over. Well, it may be over the guy. Meanwhile, Benny Sanders is confident about winning the nomination.
1: We're going to win the Democratic nomination. To defeat the most dangerous president in the history of this country, we are going to defeat Trump because we are putting together an unprecedented grassroots, multi-generational, multiracial
2: movement. Hi, uh, Thomas Gift has joined us, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UCL. Thomas, we're making a hell of a lot of assumptions already. Let me just confirm, is it now Sanders versus Biden? Is that it?
6: I think that it is. I mean, uh, really, what we're seeing is a convergence on these two candidates, and it's basically a one on one matchup. That's not official yet. Of course, to this point, Mike Bloomberg is still in the race and Elizabeth Warren is still in the race. But I do think that there is going to be a pressure after this evening for both of those candidates to exit. And then we'll basically just see this one on one face off between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden.
2: Yeah, Warren having a bad night in her home state of Massachusetts as well. Okay, so the the Democratic debate now about who can actually beat Mr. Trump has already started talking about more mainstream Mr. Biden or actually someone who can galvanize a a lot of um, more liberal support the likes of Mr. Sanders. Is there a a firm view on who can beat Mr. Trump or actually go toe-to-toe with him?
6: Well, I think that there are... Uh, Very uh, differing viewpoints on this question, obviously, and I do think that both sides can make a reasonable case. On the one hand, Joe Biden is basically saying that a moderate, someone who can resonate with blue-collar workers, centrist voters, particularly in key swing states, is going to be best positioned to court those uh, more moderate voters and disaffected Republicans. On the other hand, Bernie Sanders is trying to make the case that if you don't excite the base, if you don't get uh, liberals to show out, Get uh, generate uh, kind of unprecedented turnout. Then there's also no way that uh, Democrats are going to beat Donald Trump. So you know I think that both sides can make a, a reasonable argument on on that front.
3: Thomas, uh, some of the reports were concerning about the very last-minute decisions that Democrats were making as they were heading to, to Super Tuesday, that they was really just coming down to the wire, and many felt like they didn't have the perfect candidate. What do you make of that after all of the, uh, the last couple of years debating how the Democrats you know, lost to, to President Trump, but they still don't have the perfect candidate at this point?
6: Yeah, well, I think that they're going to basically have to go with what they have at this point. You know, I do think that um, Joe Biden uh, could make a really good candidate to go up against Trump. Uh, I think that he speaks to centrist voters. I think he speaks to moderate voters. And I think that he can appeal to a lot of uh, individuals in those key battleground states that are ultimately going to determine the outcome of the election. But of course, there's no perfect candidate. And there's always going to be some second guessing and some Monday Monday morning quarterbacking about who should be the nominee and who would be best positioned to beat Donald Trump.
5: Thomas, I mean, from the policies that are out there, I mean, one thing that's striking is pretty much all of the Democratic candidates are talking about tax hikes and things that from a market perspective are not seen as very positive. So while there may be more palatable for Biden to come through, what do we need to think about from how that that policy evolution may look like once it is one on one between either Sanders or Biden and Trump?
6: Yeah, that's absolutely a great question. And I think that economic issues, you know, broadly are going to be a, a core issue of this campaign. Certainly Sanders has more of an interventionist approach, uh, thinks that expansions of government in key areas of, of policy is best for helping particularly uh, lower income workers and middle income workers. Uh, Joe Biden probably would be less interventionist on that front. But, you know, just between now and the election, also fluctuations in the economy, unforeseen events, as we've seen with the coronavirus and the effects that that's had on the stock market, that could also uh, play a significant role, I think, between now and election.
0: Thomas, can I ask you about the money? Because uh, Klobuchar's uh, campaign ground to a halt, it seems, because she just didn't have the funding to go on. Biden has talked a lot about getting the financial support, but the reality is it hasn't really come in as yet. Are we sure that that money is there to be available to him to continue his campaign, given that we know uh, Bloomberg has plenty of firepower of his own if he needs it?
6: Certainly, Bloomberg has money to burn because he's self-financing his campaign. I do think that with some of the other candidates dropping out, including Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, and potentially Elizabeth Warren after this evening, depending on what decision she makes, there probably will be a consolidation of money behind what's perceived as the establishment choice, and that's Joe Biden. So I think between uh, now and uh, the rest of the campaign, he can expect the fundraising dollars to flow more than they have up until until this point. And just a brief one on uh, the ages are astonishing. The fact that Biden is actually
0: the youngest of the three that we're really talking about here, uh, Biden, Sarnes and Bloomberg. Um, Are millennials going to turn out and vote for a
6: 77 year old? Well, that's a great question. And Bernie Sanders in particular has been courting that youth vote. And he says that if he's chosen as the nominee, he's best positioned to galvanize that youth vote and in fact, increase voter turnout. If you actually look at the data so far, that hasn't actually happened with Bernie Sanders. Certainly he's been winning the youth vote, but he hasn't actually been expanding that uh, democratic base. So I think that that could be a core demographic that ultimately tips the election in one direction or the other, when it comes to the, the general election. But it's always a big question whether, you know, those youth voters, those millennials will actually show up.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe
2: Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
3: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.